Welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. As always, we like to start out with just getting our hearts in, in a mood to hear God's Word, sing His praises, and then to read about how we can praise Him. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can, of course, turn to Malachi, and uh, we'll be going from there. Uh, and then you can always use your, the phone on the live page to follow along in the Scriptures. We're going to cover a jump back and forth between the uh, Old Testament and New Testament a little bit today. Because I want to show you um, the title of our series today, which is, again, I Love and Don't Change. I love and don't change. That's God's message throughout. When he created man, he didn't change. Mankind changed. And he calls himself, you know, that he is Lord of hosts, or Yahweh Sabaoth is how you would say it kind of in the Hebrew. And so he says, I love, I am the God who has armies at my disposal, and I love you, and I don't change. I'm not, that's just who I am. And we can trust God. We can trust God at his word to tell us who exactly he is, and then not change that. Because we live in a world that's constantly changing. Everything around us, always. I mean, you're changing. I don't know if any of you noticed, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I noticed. I know what age I am. I'm changing rapidly. <laughs> I can't do the things I once used to do. Um, and that's just life. Yet God doesn't. And the reason he allows the change around us is because we chose. We chose to not listen to God, to not trust his love, and to believe that we could change the world we lived in you ready for this? For our benefit, so we didn't have to listen to him. That's the original sin. Satan told Adam and Eve, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want to be like you. He doesn't want you to be like him. And, and he doesn't want you to, to have the power, so to speak. And so they convinced Adam and Eve to, to love something more than God, to, a piece of fruit more than God. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. And so this morning, what I want us to look at is the idea of for what reason? This is the response Israel has, as you read in the second chapter, which we'll read today, of Malachi. Israel, God's people, remember, these aren't people that don't know about God. These aren't people that don't claim to believe in God. These are people that claim to be following God. They have a temple that they just had recently rebuilt with Ezra, and they have a city with walls that recently got rebuilt with Nehemiah. So everything looks like the economy's doing great. Looks like everything's going well, and Malachi comes in and says, nope, it, it's not. Your hearts are so far, so far from God. You have no idea. And Malachi's loving them enough to warn them. God is using Malachi, speaking through him, because Malachi means my messenger. That's what his name means. And so, for what reason? Let me ask you. Don't, don't answer out loud, because you'll be tempted to. But just think, for what reason did you get up and come here this morning? For what reason? There, there's lots of different reasons. It could be because someone you knew was going to be here and you wanted to see them. It could be because you want to do a good thing and you think, I'll do a good thing today, I'll go to church. It could be, you know, I didn't have anything better to do. I, I don't know what reason. Maybe you want to hear God's word. You came to worship. You came to fellowship with God's people. I, I don't know, but God does. God always knows the reasons behind what we do, why we do it, and how we do it. We can't hide it. And he, he loves us enough, like a good parent, to like go after it. Not just to go, oh, that's fine, you're doing the right thing, I don't care. And there was a generation of parents who that was kind of the parenting style. As long as my kids aren't doing drugs and they're not terrible people, well, then, you know, I hope they go to church, they'll be fine. You're like, we, we didn't go deeper. We didn't ask the heart questions of, for what reason? And what we find as we dive into this passage is that God is going after that. He's saying, for what reason do you do what you do? And have you chosen the things you choose? And you better know that. Because if you don't, when you get to the end, you're not going to have a good reason when you stand before God. If you don't know who he is and why you're living. And so, remember our theme verses, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? That's what we do. Really? You've loved me? Well, how? How have you loved me lately? What have you done for me? Look at my life. Look at what's happened. And then he says in verse 3-6, because I, Yahweh, have not changed. You descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. In other words, you deserve to be destroyed. You're descendants of Jacob. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Jacob was the deceiver who stole the birthright. <laughs> right? Like, not a good guy. I mean, Wow. And he's like, you're descendants of that guy, which means you know you deserve some wicked 
things to happen to you, but I've been patient. I've held back my armies. I've held back my wrath. I've held back my judgment because I'm trying to get your attention and teach you that I love you. I'm not done yet. And that's what he says. We go on in Malachi 2.11, which is where we pick up the story. And he says, Judah, remember, Judah was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So there were 12 tribes, 12 sons from Jacob. So this was one of Jacob's sons. It was his oldest son. This was the, or one of his, his primary sons when we read scripture. Okay? He was, he was one of the sons that the lion of the tribe of Judah was talked about. That's Jesus. And so it says, Judah has acted treacherously. And a detestable thing has been done in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he, lo- which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. This, this verse, we looked at briefly last week, but if you said to someone you've acted treacherously and you've done a detestable thing, he looks and he says, the most detestable thing you've done is you've decided who you're going to love and how you're going to love, and you haven't asked me. Can I just tell you, that's like every fight I've had in college ministry for 25 years. Young people who believe that they love this person and they love them and it's the way it's going to be and, and, and you can't tell me otherwise and I'll pull out scriptures that show you and all this kind of stuff and you look at them and you're like, can we talk about practically why it's not love for a second? Like he keeps pressuring you to be with him and physically be involved with him. That may not be love. Neither of you know how to take care of another person. You're both like super in debt. I heard of a couple this week. Pastor was trying to disciple them. They got really upset, left the church. And uh, come to find out when they went to another church, the pastor of that church got a hold of them and said, hey, did you know this couple is $250,000 in debt for four ministry degrees? Not a computer science degree. They did their undergraduate in some, you know, youth ministry, whatever, and then they went on to seminary, and both of them took out loans and loans and loans, and no one ever talked to them about the serious nature of what they were doing and the cost that it was going to cost them to their lives and their family. No one ever sat down and said, be careful, you're doing some treacherous stuff here. Again, debt's not evil. You just have to, man, it's, you're playing with fire. Be careful. And they wouldn't tell anybody. They dealt treacherously, and man, I hope their marriage makes it. Because that's, that's, a, that's a mess when you don't have marketable degrees necessarily. Now, can God provide? Sure, but man, you're going to have to find somebody that really wants to disciple them well. And, and they're going to have to come under some authority to like get their lives in order like we had to when we first got married and kind of gave our checkbook to somebody else to tell us what to do with our money. Because we were both idiots. And he looks and he says, you've profaned the Lord's sanctuary. And he's like, and Judah says he loves, I love where it's like which he loves, Judah says he loves the sanctuary, says he loves God, and he also says, well, I love this daughter of this foreign woman, this foreign God. It's like, well, I love both. You can't love both. (laughs) You're going to love one more than the other, Jesus says. There can only be one. And he says, and so Judah, he says, this is treacherous. God says, this is one of the most treacherous things you can do to your life if you're not careful. You'll wreck your life. It can be one of the most glorious things. Marriage can be one of the most glorious, beautiful, amazing things on the planet to help you learn how to be sanctified. That, becomes, that means become holy, more like God. Marriage will help you do that because you've got another person who knows you and they confront you. You can't get by with stuff. And you have to check your own heart on your response. Whether you know it, It's messy. It's beautiful, though. And it's how God refers to his church that Jesus is the bridegroom and we're the bride. He wants to be intimate to know us and to get in our lives and be around us and build things with us and have offspring, so to speak, spiritual offspring that we reach that come to know Christ through us. And then it goes on, it says, to the man who does this, may the Lord cut off any descendants from the tents of Jacob, even if they present an offering to the Lord of hosts. He says, look, even if you think, well, I'll just present an offering and it'll be okay. I'll go to church all the time and No, God's like, I'm not settling for second best. This person, this thing is above me and I'm not gonna let it go because I'm God. I don't make deals. I don't 
Make deals with people. You either surrender to me or I just turn you over to yourself, which we're going to look at in a second, and then you can have what you want. It's probably not going to go very well until you finally get back under me. Now, can God take treachery and sin and do amazing things with it? Absolutely. Judah's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. God has a way of taking our stupidity and go, you're stupid, but I'm going to still work because I'm just God and I'm awesome. It's called grace. But you don't want to be stupid if you don't have to be. Like why, why be in the misery? And he's looking and he's saying that. Now, remember, in the New Testament, we looked at this before. In the New Testament, the sanctuary now, under the new covenant of knowing Jesus personally and him coming and making his home in, your, in his heart and bringing the Holy Spirit as a seal and a down payment of your salvation, your heart is now the temple. Your heart is now a place where God resides. It's no longer in a temple and a holy of holies. God resides within you. So when he says you've profaned the sanctuary, for us as New Testament believers, the application is that's our heart. It's still, it's not like God changed. He just, he didn't change, he just moved the location. It's still, I want your heart. And here's how you can have my heart under this system while you wait for a Messiah who will come and fill you with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's in the Holy of Holies. Then once he comes, here's how you're going to do it. Again, God doesn't change. He fulfills relationships. See, in a marriage, the way you fulfill a marriage vow is you die. That's biblically how you fulfill a marriage vow. Like to fully fulfill it, you come to the place where you've lived your life and you die in it. And then the other person is released because you're, they can't be married to a dead person. That's weird. And so, so they are released then to be remarried. Is there forgiveness in divorce? Absolutely. But can I tell you, most people that go through divorces don't do the work of letting their heart be surrendered to God and be transformed. And they get a root of bitterness and they go into the next relationship and the next one and the next one. And it just is disastrous until they finally come back to the sanctuary, to the heart, and they look in their own heart, not at all their brothers and sisters, not at everybody else and my 11 brothers and sisters, no, my heart. What have I done to defame God's sanctuary? And trust me, this is the number one thing, the number one thing that I see more believers get derailed on is they marry unbelievers. They marry people they, get, they fall in love, they date, they go out, they become close, opposite-sex friends with someone who is an unbeliever. And the Bible warns over and over and over again how unwise that is. It is dangerous for your soul, for their soul, and the souls of your offspring. He goes on and says this in 2 Corinthians 6.14. So that was Old Testament, New Testament. This is Paul speaking. If you remember... The Apostle Paul was radically transformed. He was a murderer. God grabbed his life. He became a Christian, stopped murdering them, and started serving and giving their life, giving his life to them. God used him to advance the message of the good news about a Messiah from the Old Testament, who is Jesus, who completed the message of, of Malachi. And, and he wrote a letter, 1 Corinthians. This is what? 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote a 1 Corinthians letter because in the Corinthian church, it was a disaster. And one of the major disasters in the Corinthian church that Paul had to address was marriage. That's why there's 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, that's about pretty much marriage. That's why it's read at weddings. Because there were serious issues with covenants and marriage in Rome, in this time, and in the church. And Paul's like, you can't do this. this. This isn't just God forgives, it's no big deal. This is treacherous in the New Testament congregation. Don't do this. And if you do, there needs to be repentance. And so in his first letter, Paul's writing, he calls them harshly to repentance. If you read 1 Corinthians, and you take some time to read that, there's 1 Corinthians 13 that's there, but boy, the rest of the book just shreds people. I mean, it even names people by name in that book. Like this guy, that girl. Like, can you imagine doing that on a Sunday? I mean, wow. Because Paul loves people and he loves the church. He's not mad. He's not like, I'm going to get that first Corinthians. I planted that church. I'm going to tell them what I think. Paul loves them. And he says that in the letters. He's like, I love you so much. God loves you more than I do. Don't do this. 
He says, don't be mismatched with unbelievers. Mismatched. Another version says, don't be unequally yoked. In other words, a yoke is something that oxen would wear and they'd pull a plow together. Well, if two oxen put their head in a plow and they're pulling and one oxen decides to lay down, I'm not going, I'm going to do what I want to do, the plowing doesn't go well. Because now the other ox has to pull that ox plus the plow. And the yoke isn't designed to rub on the side. The yoke is designed, sorry, to rub on the top. And so now you're being bloodied because you're having to pull a different direction than the design. And it doesn't last, it doesn't go well. And eventually, you got one person bloodied and the other person, it's just a mess. Nothing can get done. He says, for what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Well, but they're a good person. No, they're not. According to scripture, if they don't know Jesus Christ, they're not a good person. They are selfishly a good person. I was that guy. I was the guy that went to church every Sunday, president of my youth group. I was the good guy who selfishly tried to use everything I could get my hands on for my benefit. The church, my parents, relationships, friendships, you name it. It was about getting me where I needed to be. And boy, it is so much easier to get where you need to be and be selfish and manipulative and not tell the truth to people and confront things than it is to be me and like carry a baseball bat around and try to get people to submit to you. So much easier to do it nicely. It's still awful. And God says, for what fellowship does light have with darkness? If they don't have light in them, listen, the light was where they had the sanctuary and they, they, they lit the lampstands inside the sanctuary that in the book of Revelation, the letters to the churches, he tells them, I'm going to remove your light, your lampstand. Like, if you have Christ, you have the light, and he begins to illuminate your life. If you've got someone who's in darkness, then there's, there's nothing in common. Because all you can do is constantly be exposing them to the light all the time when they want to be in the dark. You know how frustrating that is? Have you ever tried to sleep and somebody's doing this with the light switch all the time in your room? Try it. Go home tonight. Lay down, ask your roommate to come in and say, I'm going to experience like the, the war between light and darkness. I'm going to lay down and I want you to keep flipping the light switch and see how long. Like, you'll finally fall asleep, angry and exhausted. And if you're a Christian, you can't help but flip the light switch because it's who you are. You're not trying to do it to be mean, like, I gotcha, gotcha. It's just, I'm light. You walk into the room, it's like, oh, there they are again. And even if you're the sweetest, nicest person, which you should be nice and sweet when you can and to represent Christ, when you look at another human being and say, you're not a good person, you need Jesus, you're going to be separated from him for eternity, and you like, have that conversation and the other person knows it, it's awkward after that. That's why we don't share the gospel. Because I don't want to be awkward in relationships. I want people to like me. And I know that if I actually share the gospel as nicely as I can and look at them and say, I'm not trying to force you to believe. It's your choice. I can't make you believe. I just want you to know that this is the most important thing in the world to me. And if I didn't tell you, then you wouldn't know who I am. You wouldn't know who God was. And I'd feel terrible. So I just want you to know. And they're going to look at you and be like, you're judgmental. You, I, I, I can't not share. The light's in me. It just comes on. And then he says, or... What agreement does Christ have with Bielal? What agreement? They don't agree on any. Satan and Jesus don't agree. They, I don't know if you know that. But he's a constant adversary. That's what he's called, an adversary. Constantly an adversary to anything God wants to happen. And the greatest place where, where Satan is an adversary is marriage. Because if he can tear that apart, then he's got all the offspring messed up and over and over and over again. Now, is there restoration? Can, can, you, can you go to your kids and say, your mom and I blew it. We're so sorry and you're in this mess because of us and we all need Jesus and we need to cry out to him and we need to ask his mercy. Absolutely. Yes, because we're all messed up. Marriage isn't, and divorce, it's no more unforgivable than anything else, but man. And then he says, and what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? In other words, 
If you're going to marry an unbeliever, the reason you did it is because they're an idol to you. And now you're going to have a war on your hands between the sanctuary of your heart and the things that you want to do to surrender to God and the idol that's going to constantly fight you. And then he goes on and he says, for we are the sanctuary of the living God. There it is. We're the sanctuary. The body coming together, us, bringing our lights together, shining a light. We're the sanctuary as God said. I dwell among them and walk among them. That's the Garden of Eden. That's paradise. And there's an enemy, a serpent, that's constantly trying to get in between relationships all the time to lie, to cheat, to steal, to confuse, and to pull us away from the truth of who God is. And he says, I will be their God, they'll be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Don't touch anything clean, unclean thing, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He's like, I'm inviting you to be a part of a family. And in marriage, when you choose to marry, the Bible says you leave and cleave, and you're creating a new family unit. And when that happens, the question is, are you doing it because the Father has given his blessing? Or are you doing it because it's what you feel like you want to do and you don't even care what God has to say about it? Your mind's already made up. God says, be careful. And then he goes on and it says this, and this is another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altars with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hearts. Listen, we live in a culture where this is everything. Where if someone is sincere about something, you can't argue with them. If they feel it and they are sincerely, like it's, it's a deep truth, I believe, it, then you, you're not allowed to argue. God says, this is another thing. You cover my altar with tears, with weeping, I, don't, I, don't, I no longer respect what you're doing. You're coming to me, here's why. And here, here's the connotation here. The reason you're coming to me with these tears and this groaning is because you're now experiencing the consequences of the marriage you did and the, and the choice you made and the idols of your life. And now you're coming to me and you're all sad and groaning, but you're still bringing offerings thinking that's what's going to get you right with me. I'm going to bring some more offerings, right? And I'm crying. I'm so, here's another offering. I'm, I won't do that again. Here's some money. Here's, and God's like, nope. I don't settle for offerings. I want it all. I want your heart. I want all of you. I'm not settling. You can keep covering with tears. You can keep having emotional experiences. Nope. I'm not in it if you're not surrendered of heart. It doesn't matter how many tears you cry. It doesn't matter how bad you feel. Here's the other great, are you ready for this? Here's the other great, wonderful thing about that truth. No matter how many tears you don't cry, no matter how you depressed or how awful and anxious you feel, God hasn't changed. He's the same. He loves you. And he's not going to settle for less. See, it works both ways. If I can manipulate God with my emotions, right, then my emotions become God. Are emotions important? Absolutely. They reveal things about us. They reveal things about our heart. When you have a reaction, it, it, it should check you to say, wow, where'd that come from? And you check your heart to see, did that emotion come from God or did that emotion come from Matt, from flesh? See, that's what he's saying to Judah. He's like, you've acted treacherously and I want your heart and you keep trying to make deals with me. Stop it. Just surrender. Surrender to me. Surrender to my people. Surrender and get back on track with the simple things that I've been saying to do forever. And then he says, yet you ask for what reason? For, for what reason would you reject our emotion? We're really, like, we're crying out here. We're singing. We're, we're crying. Why would, we've been giving offerings. We've been coming to church. We've been giving money. We, we gave our, why would you reject? For what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've acted treacherously against her, though she was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. You won't deal 
with the issue I've pointed out. Listen, God could have pointed out any other issue. He could have picked another son of Jacob and talked about their issues, which he does in other books. But with Judah, Judah's issue was a marriage problem. If you go back and read about Judah and Tamar in the Old Testament, whoo, bad story. We read that with our kids when we did our Bible reading. We got to that story. We're like, should we read this story to our kids? Okay, here we go. And boy, did they have questions. Tamar was Judah's sister-in-law, and he was supposed to make sure that she had a spouse to carry on offspring and and the land, and and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't fulfill his his marriage obligation that he was supposed to do as a father, as a leader in the home. So Tamar doesn't know what to do. She's like, fine. So she tricks Judah. She dresses up as a prostitute, knows Judah probably likes women. He has a woman problem, and she goes to another town knowing where Judah's going to travel, and Judah hires her as a prostitute and gives him his signet cord and his ring and says, here, and all of a sudden, Tamar is impregnated by Judah. She comes back, and they go, you're pregnant. They're ready to kill her for becoming pregnant because you've been pregnant out of wedlock. And she says, oh, no, no. And she pulls out the cord and the ring and says, whose is this? Why is it I had to do this? Why did I have to go to this extreme? Because I was so struggling? Because this man wouldn't step up and do the right thing that God had asked to be done. He wouldn't trust God. Now, does that make it right? No, it just makes it a mess. And it it was, you talk about a family mess. Wow. That's messy. But yet God still used it. There was still grace. Judah didn't try to excuse his sin and say, kill her anyway. Nah, he was like, oh yeah, I I did it. You see, this is why he's going after Judah. And Judah being Israel and Judah. Israel was the northern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom. Okay? Both of them had gone into captivity. I mean, both of them were in a mess already. And he's looking, it's like, look, Judah always thought they were better than Israel because Israel went into slavery like about 150 years before Judah did. And so Judah was like, ha ha, God got those, our brothers, ha ha, you guys, we're good. He loves us. We have the temple, you don't. And he's like, no, I'm coming for you too. You won't submit either. And so here they're acting and he says, I've been a witness that you keep acting treacherously. In other words, You say you love the church, the bride of Christ. You say you're surrendered, but you keep acting treacherously towards my bride, Christ says. Don't do it. He goes on and he says this in 2 Corinthians. This is Paul again. 2 Corinthians 7. He says, for even if I grieved you with my letter, look at what Paul says. Remember, he wrote the first letter and it was brutal. And he heard because a letter came back to him, he heard that it really hurt their feelings. Like they were really offended. It hurt people. There was a lot of brokenness and mess in the church because of Paul's first letter that he wrote to the first Corinthians. And so he writes a second one. And in his second one, he goes, look, for even if I grieved you, tears, cry, if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. Even though I did regret it since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while. In other words, Paul says, I don't, I mean, I kind of regret it when I first saw it. Like, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have had to done that. But then I started thinking about it. I'm like, no, I needed to do that. It's kind of like a parent when you have to discipline your children. Listen, if you're a parent who gets excited to like hit your children or spank them or discipline them, you need to repent. You should never be excited about having to get your kid. You should be brokenhearted about it. You should still discipline them. (laughs) Don't let your your feelings and emotion rule you. He goes, look, I, I, I wish I wouldn't have had to do it, but I did. And then he says, but now I rejoice, not because you were grieved. Look at that. Not because you cried a bunch of tears. Not because it was like, oh, we're so sorry. No, 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 no. I've seen that. I'm Paul. I've been in ministry. I'm a Jew. I know what Malachi said. I had to memorize it as a fair. No, 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 no. I don't care about your emotion. What really gets me stoked is... But because your grief led to repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Earthly sorrow leads to, I just do what I want to do. No change. No restructure of your life. And he says, for you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. In other words, reconciliation. That you were willing to say, yeah, I did that. I'm sorry. And there was reconciliation, not we got to get rid of Paul. We got to throw him out. He's like, there are those of you who received my word and said, thank you, repented. And it caused other people in the church to get, it caused a huge mess. 
But you see that you didn't want to lose the truth about our relationship in Christ Jesus. And then he says, for godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation. But worldly grief produces death. That's what we just read in Malachi. And listen, we are in a, in a time in our culture where worldly grief, we will not talk about death in the middle of people's worldly grief. That if somebody's crying, somebody's got to swoop in and make them happy. Somebody's hurting, we've got to swoop in and fix it as fast as we can. Instead of saying, you know, let's take some patience, let's pray, let's seek the Lord, let's see what he wants, let's, let's look to the truth, what does he say? And instead, we're killing ourselves over and over and over again and literally killing ourselves because the suicide rate and drug rate is off the charts in history. He goes on, he says, for consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God's will has produced in you. What desire, look at this, what desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. Paul's like, man, I wrote this letter and I thought they're not gonna respond. It, the man, I don't even know if there's gonna be a church left in, first, in Corinth. I mean, I got, but I gotta say these things. And look at the, the you, you were like, I gotta clear myself. I've gotta go before the Lord. I've gotta ask forgiveness. I've, I've gotta make sure that I'm right with people in my past. I, I've gotta do this. And he says, what indignation. You were like, I can't not, I cannot let this go. And then he says, what fear. That you had fear of like, man, I just want to be, I just want to be close to God. I want to be, what deep longing. In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. You were longing for holiness. That's what purity is. It's saying, God, I can't make myself pure. You have to do it. I, I long for you. you. And then you respond to it. Paul says that's exactly the same thing Malachi. They're, they're saying the exact same thing. The two books are like, here, look. How much more does God have to say? He goes on, Malachi, and it says, didn't the one God make us with a remnant of his life breath? And what does one seek? Does the one seek? A godly offspring. If you have two people in a home who are committed to Christ and committed to his church and they're committed to others instead of themselves and they're laying down their life, then guess what? The kids are going to see that over and over and over. But when you start acting selfishly and demanding your own rights and all that kind of stuff, the kids are going to see that and they're going to do it too. And it doesn't matter how many Bible verses you give them. It doesn't matter how many things you preach at them. They're going to look and go, that's all right. I see what you say, but I watch what you do and I'm... No. Now, does that mean they have an excuse? No. Not at all. We'll see that in just a second. We're, we're all without excuse. And he goes in and he says, so watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. Now, I read a statistic recently where today, in this time period, women couldn't really file for divorce. It was very difficult for a woman to file for divorce in these times. It was. There was a way to do it in Scripture. It's very difficult. So it was always the man filing for divorce. We have now crossed that threshold that the majority of divorces are filed by women in the United States, not men now. The overwhelming majority. This verse has kind of swung back around that we've so broken everything down that women aren't even standing up to married the men, it's a mess and he looks and he says don't act treacherously in other words you ready for this don't use somebody up and say well he gave me all I could and I'm gonna find another one and we've been taught how to do that in the workplace we've been taught how to do that in our families we've been taught how to do that all across the board how, how do you feel well you just gotta you gotta make the decision on what you really feel how about make the decision on what doesn't use people? <laughs> what, what thinks back over history and, and has gratitude and thanksgiving for the life you've been given? It's really interesting. We were at the show choir competition yesterday and talking to a young lady that my daughters have shared her faith with. She's actually made a profession of faith, which is really cool. And she's going to be a teacher, a music teacher. And she was playing for one of the other choirs that we compete against. And she grew up at Edgewood. She was an orphan. And... And she's talking, and, and we're standing there, 
and we're just in the hallway. It's the dad's crew. We have all the equipment. We're kind of standing, hanging out, talking with one another. And she comes over, and she's talking, and she's getting ready to go on with her group, playing piano. She's student teaching at that school. And she looks, and she says, you know, I've come to this school, and they have a great program. And, but she said, like, when I see the dads, because we're dad's crew. No one else is dad's crew in the show choir world because it's too judgmental. I'll just be honest with you. We're wondering when we're going to get, like, criticized for it because, wait, you're all male dominant. Like, all the other show choirs struggle to even find fathers in their kids' lives. And we're, like, 10 or 12 dads <laughs> together, many of us believers, sharing with others. And here we are lined up, and she's like, you know, when I got out of it, I've just become more and more grateful for the life I was given here at Edgewood. She was brought in by another woman who's a Christian who my wife and her prayed together on a regular basis. And she's like, I just become more and more grateful for, just, I, I just, I'm overwhelmed. You see, that, that's what happens when you begin to, to live a life that isn't about you. You begin to serve others and step out begin to see what you've had. And that's what God's trying to get Judah to see. He's saying, look, you don't understand what you've had and you keep chasing something better, another relationship, another thing. Me, I'm it. And then he says, if he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, your version might say, God hates divorce. If he, if he divorces and hates his wife, says the God of Israel, he covers his garments with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of armies. That's Yahweh Sabaoth who has armies. He's got armies and you're doing it. Do you recognize he's got armies he can send after you before you make this decision? And then he says, therefore watch yourselves carefully and don't act treacherously. He started with treacherous and he ends like, don't act treacherous. Don't be treacherous and try to play the game where you get what you want. Don't do it. Because if you go down that road, you have no idea the offspring that you're going to, don't. And what we're seeing in America today is a lot of Christians who have been taught this in their churches. They've been taught that you just, you just keep going to the next best thing. And when they look back over their life, because they're not there yet, it's going to be misery. They're just going to see where they've used people and not given themselves, and it's going to be something difficult to deal with. I guarantee it. And you want to know why so many kids won't believe? Because they've watched their parents. I was at a conference Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I kind of didn't want to go to it, but I went. I was glad I went. But at the conference, I sat in a meeting about reaching collegiate students. I always want to learn, and so I went to two sessions, breakout sessions about collegiate ministry, and I sat there. And they, they had a Q&A after one of the collegiate ministry times. They were talking about, you know, well, this is our new vision of how we're going to do collegiate ministry. And I'm like, that's the same thing we did 25 years ago. Like, it was one of those moments where, like, you just put new names on what we did 25. Like, it's, you're, you're, and I wasn't critical. I just was like, okay, I'd, here's what I asked. I raised my hands and I said, because I some of these people were talking about, well, what do we do about with parents? And I said, well, let me tell you what we did. We told our kids that if they weren't involved in a church and they weren't in a small group and they weren't being spiritually mentored, that we stopped paying bills. We cut them off. We're done. You gotta fake it. At least fake it. And it was like I said something revolutionary. I mean, and if you don't do it, just tell them, well, I'm not gonna do it because I'm gonna have grace on you. I should do it, but I'm not going to. You see, the problem is we're not as concerned about godly offspring as we are of just offspring. I just want to see numbers. I want to see lots of stuff. I want to see big. And if, if, I, got, if I got offspring, I'm doing well. Are they godly offspring? Because if they're not, they're going to make ungodly offspring. And that should be our major concern. It should drive our prayers. It should drive our hearts. And we should look at him and say, look, God doesn't want you to separate. He wants reconciliation. In Ephesians 5, 6, Paul says it this way, let no one deceive you with empty arguments. Listen, that is our world today. It's just empty arguments. People rewriting scripture, reinterpreting, and God's old and we need to make him modern. 
He says, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. He is Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the God who has armies at his disposal and he is patiently holding back his wrath because he loves us. <laughs> That's the only reason. Otherwise, he'd be like, get them. And he hasn't. Therefore, do not become their partners. Don't become their partners. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then he says, this is what the fruit of light is. And it's the fruit of the spirit, basically. He like lays out the fruit of the spirit again, which we looked at last week. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the fruit of the spirit starts with love and always ends with self-control. That's what it does. And it's amazing how if we're willing to self-control ourselves and cry for God's love, he'll, he'll bring all those other fruits and give us love. It's amazing how it works both ways. Then he goes on and he says, pay careful attention. This is just what Malachi said. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. You live in evil times. There's an enemy trying to get you every day spiritually. Are we supposed to be panicked and afraid? No, because we have a bigger God than the enemy who's trying to get us. We just need to get close to him. We'll be fine. And then he says, so don't be foolish. Don't be a fool and think you can play around with this. You can't. Then he goes on, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. And understand that the Lord's will doesn't always mean things work out wonderful and great and prosperous for you on this earth. Sometimes the Lord's will in Scripture was put his people in slavery. Multiple times. That's the God you say you believe in or you want to rewrite God. There's no other option. Like God said, I, I've done everything I can to love you. I'm turning, I turn you over. There you go. I, I don't know what else to do. It's good parenting. And, and he looks and he says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit. He says, your tendency, listen, your tendency is going to be when you're trying to be wise and the struggle that it is, is to look for a coping mechanism. They didn't have opioids in this day. They had alcohol. They didn't have marijuana. They had alcohol. They didn't have a substance to go after except alcohol. He's like, don't get drunk with wine. Don't use that as your coping mechanism. Don't go to that. Go to the Spirit. Cry out to God to be filled up. God, fill me. Help me. I feel so empty. And then go where you can be filled, which is other believers. Because if another person's filled with the Spirit, and you feel empty, and you get connected to them, and you're one in Christ, you begin to fill each other up. He goes on and he says this, you've wearied the Lord with your words. So not only have you wearied the Lord with your tears and your groaning, you've wearied him with your words. Yet you ask, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight and he's pleased with them. Or you say, where's the God of justice? Read those two questions again to yourself. I would argue those are two of the biggest questions about God in our culture today. If God is so good and so just, why is there evil? Why is there sin in the world? How can you believe in God that would let this happen and that happen and this? Where's the God of justice? The other question, and he's pleased with them. God doesn't want anybody to be judged. God just loves people. I mean, he, he understands He's okay with it. These are the questions of our, like this is a document that's really old. And it's like, oh wow, that's me today. That's our culture. That's my friends. That's, that's my own heart at times. Like, he's dead on. Look at what Romans 1, Paul says. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Let me, let me tell you, that's our biggest problem. Our biggest problem for what reason is that we don't like to go back to the gospel. We like to come up with another reason. For what reason do you do finances the way you do them? Well, I want to be a millionaire when I'm old and retired and then I can go like play golf. And God's okay with that. Like he loves me. He wants me to have that. Maybe he does. I don't know. That's not a good reason to give. You should say because I want to glorify God with every dime he gives me and I hope to continue to glorify him. And so I want to have a nest egg and I want to be able to give forever. And I just, that's my passion. That's, my... that's not what you get. 
Like when you start pushing on them, that's what you'll get. Like you'll push on somebody a little bit when they give you the answer. Oh, well, I meant that. I meant that I want to really make God the sinner. You know, you already got exposed. You, you already exposed your heart. See, are you, are you not ashamed of the gospel? I heard this week, I heard this week that someone, a minister, was suggesting that we shouldn't talk about abortion because it's offensive, especially to students, college students, because it's not really applicable to them. We just need to focus on the gospel. What gospel are you preaching? Millions of babies murdered. Millions. A million a year. Not for like medical reasons. No, 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 no. Just because they're inconvenient. And you think God in heaven's going, I understand. It's really hard to raise a child as a single mom. You just get rid of it. Well, I understand that you shouldn't suffer the consequences of your actions. I understand that you shouldn't suffer for anyone else because I wouldn't do that if I was God. I wouldn't, I wouldn't suffer for anybody when they did something to me. I, oh, wait, that's the gospel. Is rape horrible? Yeah, do you want to know the percentage of abortions that are rape-related? It is low. It's in the single digits. Very few are for that reason. But God's people have been raping and pillaging him forever and he gave his own son and we killed him. And we love death. We love killing God when he comes because we don't want to hear it. And he looks and he says, because it's God's power to save us. We, are, we need a Messiah. We cannot save ourselves. To everyone who believes, first to the Jew, Malachi is writing the Jews, you need a savior, you need to trust God. And now to us as the Greeks that get grafted and adopted into the family. You're, you're, you're an adopted family member of Abraham. Did you know that? You're adopted, the Bible says. Why? Because God is fulfilling his covenant to Abraham. He told Abraham, I love you and I don't change. So every single Gentile, every non-Jew person who believes... You get, another, you get another kid, another star in the heavens. It's, I'm going to keep fulfilling my covenant to Abraham because that's just who I am. I don't change. And he goes on, he says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We don't want to deal with truth. We just want to get to a certain level and then suppress everything else. I don't want to go all the way in on my heart. I want to get to a certain level and then be comfortable. I don't know if you saw David Platt's prayer at the rally for the March for Life. David Platt is a pastor who was the president of our international mission board up until last year. Okay, he wrote the book Radical. David Platt is a man that really tries desperately to live on mission for God. It was amazing. Go look at his prayer on YouTube. One of the most amazing, wow, I mean, and bold. With the, like he unapologetically was like, I'm going to pray in, 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 in his name. I'm, I'm so, that's just who I am. And then he just lays the truth out. It's an amazing prayer. Watch it today. It's just a couple of minutes long. Amazing what he prays. It's like, man, that's the prayers. And as he prays, he's looking over at the two children he's adopted. Because he's like, if we're going to be serious about solving the problem of abortion, then maybe we need to give up our lives to raise some kids. I didn't like that part of the prayer personally. I've raised my kids, thank you very much. Now, does that mean we need to bring in kids? No, it may be spiritual children that you're raising, which I am. I have people in my life I'm discipling and mentoring and building into it. Like we desire to give to. That, that doesn't get me off the hook of praying about God. Do you want us to bring another? We brought our niece in. Do you want us to bring another one? Like it, I, I want to be done. I want my wife and I to just be us. Because we got pregnant like three months in. It's been kids and there was no honeymoon. God's like, Matt, will you suppress the truth or will you deal with it? Man, see, he loves me enough to challenge my heart. And he goes on and he says, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God's shown it to him. We're all without excuse. God has made himself so evident in so many ways 
And we just ignore it. Then he goes on and he says, although they full, know full well in verse 32, God's just sentence, that he's just, which we just read their argument of where's the God of justice? No, they know full well. Listen, everybody wants justice for other people and mercy for themselves. Everybody wants justice or wants mercy for their tribe and justice for the other tribe. Everybody. Unless they come under God's tribe and come under him and his ways, and then we want God's justice. We're not concerned about ourselves or our tribe. And then he says that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, here's the key, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. They start encouraging the behavior. Listen, I've said all along that I can work with people who are broken, I can work with people who do the behavior and they're broken over it and they want to change and they want to structure things and they fall off the bandwagon, they get back on and it's a, it's a lifetime of struggle. Man, I am all for working with people like that. But when you get to a place where you, don't, where you say, I can do it, it's no big deal, and then you're encouraging and telling other people, well, I can do it and you can't, and I'm, I'm good. I have to go after that as a pastor. I have to. I, I can't just let that happen. Because it says if you do, it's not going to go well for the family. I don't want people applauding things that aren't good. He goes on and he says, see, I'm going to send my messenger. Remember, Malachi's name is my messenger. I'm going to send my Malachi, another Malachi. And he will clear the way before me, before me. Now God is saying, look at this. God's saying, I'm going to send someone who's going to clear the way for me to come to you. Watch this. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come into his temple, the messenger of the covenant you desire. You desire a covenant that is I love and don't change, a covenant that doesn't change, that when you accept Christ, he says, you're mine. I don't give up on you. You, you, you so desperately want that, and God says, that's what you really desire. And then he says, see, he is coming. He's coming, says the Lord who has armies at his disposal. Look, he says he's coming. Well, did he come? Or are we still waiting on his coming? Luke 1, 16. He will turn away many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. Or turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord, not away. Turn many to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children, a family, and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. People that are ready for him. They, they, do you know who this is written about? Who? John the Baptist. This was written right after it talks about John the Baptist being conceived and being born. And God says, this is what he's going to do. Oh, by the way, that's a quote from Malachi. <laughs> he, he's going to be my, mess, my Malachi again to you because he's getting ready for me who's coming. And isn't it interesting that right when Zechariah has made the offerings and his son is conceived and he dedicates his son, it's right after that that Jesus comes into the temple to be dedicated. This is fulfilled when John and Jesus are babies. And then it's fulfilled their whole life. And then one day it's going to be ultimately fulfilled. And he says, this, Jesus said this, this John the Baptist is the one written about in Malachi. He quotes Malachi. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. He says that John the Baptist fulfills Malachi. There you go. And here I am. I am the, I am the, I am the one you want. I'm God who you want. I am the relationship you want. Do you recognize it? No. Crucify him. Crucify him. You, you do not have the right to tell me what to do. You do not have, how much more do I have to prove to you? I wrote a book 400 years ago and then made it all come perfectly to pass and you're still like, yeah, I'm not really sure I can believe in this God. As we wrap up, it says this. Malachi says, look, God loves you enough. Look at this, God loves you enough. He's going to send you a messenger. John the Baptist. To call you to repent and then he's actually gonna come himself to ask you to love him and repent. Like, like he's, gonna, he's gonna do everything he can to know you because here's the reality. 
but who can endure the day of his coming? He's talking about the second coming here. Who can endure the day of his second coming when Jesus comes back and who will be able to stand when he appears? Listen, the Bible says that at the name, at his name, Yahweh who saves, at his name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We will, listen, when he comes back, we're not gonna be in a stadium like cheering him. We're gonna fall like dead people. And if we're not dead, he needs to kill the body we're in so he can give us a new one. So we're dead. We're, we're going to be like overwhelmed and then we're going to hear him say, it's all right. If you know me, we're together. It's good. Whew. Have life. Get up. Let's go. Ride on a horse. I'll be out in front. You get to do nothing but cheer me on. Let's go. That's Revelation, literally. It says the rider's going to come who is righteous and true. He's going to be riding along and his tongue is like a sword and we're, all we get is a horse and a robe riding behind him going, woo Like we're not even doing anything. Because it's about him, not us. And he says, look at this, for he will be like a refiner's fire and a cleansing lye. You ever use lye soap? It'd be awful, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it's cleansing. If it's not made right, though, whoo, be careful. It's a refining fire. It's a cleansing. You'll know you've been clean. It's a beautiful picture God gives when he says, for he will be like that fire that burns all the mess away and you come out pure as gold. But see, my problem is, your problem is, I don't want to be in the fire. <laughs> and oftentimes, if we're honest, we're like a junior high boy and like a shower is the worst thing I could take, Right? And it's not because they don't know they're dirty. Most of it's just rebellion. If you tell me I'm going to take a shot, no, I'm fine. You stink. I, I'm good. No, no, you're not. See, that's our heart. And God, look at this. He lays this out in Malachi and he says, look, I have done everything I can do. I'm going to send a messenger and then I'm going to come personally and invite you into a relationship. I'm going to do everything I can. And you better be ready because there's a day coming. And if you're not ready, when it comes, you're in trouble. You will be separated from me forever. You will take all the consequences and all the pain on yourself. But if you'll come to me and you'll repent of your last past life and you'll surrender to me and you'll say, I'm done, help, and you'll confess that to other people and you'll make him known and you'll get, like, God's like, that's all I'm looking for. I'm just looking for that person that will, that will admit it. And then God says, I will build godly offspring through you as you become my godly offspring. See, for what reason? For what reason do you do what you do? Why are you at college? For what reason? Why are you dating someone? For what reason? Why are you married? For what reason? I'm not telling you to give up on your marriage. God's pretty clear, and you can look in Scripture about what to do with an unbeliever. There are some guidelines. Of, if you have an unbelieving spouse, how you're supposed to behave and how you take that out to its Final conclusion, the, the, the scriptures talk about that. They, they can help us through that, and we'd love to help you through that. Most people don't let us. They just do their own thing and then don't want to deal with it. And God says, look, I want you to be someone who endures on the day of my coming. Remember last week, I told you what that word endurance or perseverance means? It means to get under or get behind. It's like the little kid when the when it's really going down and you get behind dad and he's out in front. Like he covers you up and then goes out. Like that's our God. So let me ask you, for what reason? For what reason? Why, why, why our church? Why, why, why the relationship? For what reason? And you may not know. Maybe you just need to start asking. Man, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to ask that. For what reason? And hopefully you'll come up with the answer to know that the Lord loves you and he doesn't change. The question is, what will your response be to that? Will you be like the two people that are the questions that were asked to say, where is the God of justice? You're not giving me what I want, God. Will you be the other person? <laughs> Ask the question, looks and says, I can do what I want. God will be happy with me. 
Will you be the person that looks to Scripture like we open every Sunday and we do in our groups to say, I want this God. I want, I want the, real, the real one, not a false one. And will you order your life in a way that can do that for the rest of your life?